Um, Revelation is a difficult book, and you've probably noticed that by now um, in our series in Revelation. And it's difficult because it's, it belongs in the apocalyptic genre that's made up of visions, uh, filled with symbols and allusions, these throwback metaphors, imageries uh, that go back to the Old Testament. Um, and so it takes more time to unpack, uh, more time to decipher, if you will. Often you have to revisit the text a couple of times or even revisit the sermon a couple of times to, to get the full meaning and application of these passages in Revelation. And if that's you, you're working through the book of Revelation this way, slowly and, and gradually. Uh, that's absolutely normal. It's fine. Uh, you're not alone in that. I think this could be similar to how uh, reading up a little bit about the, the Renaissance or the Romantic period can give you a greater appreciation uh, of your, the trip you make to the art museum. Uh, it, it, it doesn't just give you a better understanding of the paintings you will look at, but also the period from which they come from. But it takes extra studying. Um, it's less fun, but it's more meaningful. And likewise, our study in Revelation can, can give us a, both a better understanding of these visions that's right in front of us, but also the various passages in the Old Testament where these visions uh, point us back to. Today's passage is really like that. Uh, this will immediately feel very difficult to understand and interpret on first reading, but when we ponder on the symbols and go back to the Old Testament as, and use that as the interpretive key, we'll get to the bottom of it. Um, today's passage are two symbols. Uh, first is a symbol of the temple city, and the second is a symbol of the two witnesses. So what I'm going to do is explain each of these symbols, and along the way, I'll, I'll try to draw out some applications that I hope you'll, you'll pick up here and there and apply to your own life. Okay, the applications will sort of be sprinkled here and there, and I hope you'll pick up on what, what your heart um, gravitate towards. So here's the first point um, about the first symbol, and that is the symbol of the temple city. Take a look again at verse um, 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, that's a very clear allusion, once again, a throwback to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, especially in, in the closing um, chapters where similar measurements of the temple and the city are, are taken. There's a very clear parallel here. Uh, in Ezekiel, there's a measuring of the inner court. There's also the measuring of the outer court, right? just like in, in, in verse 1. And two, um, and Ezekiel concludes with the measuring of the holy city, and and as he concludes the the measurements, God says this in Ezekiel, and this is the last verse in the book of Ezekiel. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Okay, that's the end of Ezekiel. the The main point, in other words, of measuring God's temple and God's city was to let God's people know the Lord is there with you, with his people. Uh, the measurements were not mere mathematical uh, numbers. They were God's indicating that he is with them within those boundaries. Okay. Now, when you move into the New Testament, how does God's temple presence come to his people there? The author of Hebrews tells us, in Christ we find our true tent, true priest, true offering, and therefore our true temple. Okay. Um, the Lord is there now means the Lord has come to us in Jesus. 
He is God with us, God Emmanuel. That's where his presence is. And he came to us to bring to us ultimately this, the presence of God, that, that we forfeited with our own sins, with our own rebellion, with our own will to live for ourselves. God restored what we had lost. He restores it by sending us his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why uh, at the moment of Christ's death, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And that is why Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is himself the curtain torn in two. That brings us into the full presence of God. And, and Jesus also taught his disciples, my kingdom or my city is not of this world. In other words, we no longer operate based on the physical temple and the physical kingdom, Israel. His true followers will not go to the temple called Christ and, and usher in the kingdom that his God will usher in. We don't, we don't go into a physical temple with physical offerings. We don't pick up a physical sword and fight physical battles. We come to Christ and worship in spirit and in truth. Now, here's something else that's, that's also important. Uh, since the true presence of God now is found in Christ, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, you who are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, you are being built into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay? You are being built into a dwelling place for God. In other words, uh, you who have placed your faith in Christ, you're not merely called to enter into the presence of God, God is calling you so he would enter into you, uh, into your heart, to make you his dwelling place. That's the ultimate goal. That's how near he ultimately wants to be with his people. Not to be in the building together, but be, be one. Now, how does this um, come to fruition in the end? We, you, you actually see this in Revelation 21. When Jesus returns, he brings his city down to earth, John says this, and I saw no temple in the city of God, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Meaning, in the end, the presence of God with his people will be so complete, uh, so perfected, you won't need to be in this, even in the same, be in the same building uh, with one another. The fullness of God's presence with his glorified people will be perfect. And it says there in Revelation 21, he'll be so close to you, he'll be close enough to you to wipe away every tear from your eyes. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And he will welcome you home. So in the end, the end of the story is God and the people of God, creator, creation, the, the, the first cause and the caused Savior and forgiven sinners will be together face to face and everything will be the way it ought to be. When all is said and done, his, when history comes to an end, Jesus will have kept his word. He will make his dwelling place with his people. So that's the bird's eye view um, about the, the temple city theme throughout the, the Old Testament and the New um, the earthly temple and the earthly city were just foreshadowing the eternal heavenly presence of God that we now have, we've regained through Jesus Christ. Christians are people who understand this. 
and enjoy this as their greatest reward and treasure. The treasure is not heaven. It's God, His presence. The treasure is who we get to be with in heaven, not heaven itself. As John Piper once put it, people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. Heaven is not a reward for Christians. God in heaven is. The heavenly Father is. He is the true reward. You can even say this, that a a truly born-again believer is someone who, who would not choose heaven if God was not there. Whereas the religious are only those who want heaven because they don't like the idea of hell. And that's not a mark of a Christian believer. That's just a mark of someone who is religious. For those who do see Christ as their beautiful Savior, they worship Him and they delight in Him and they want to draw nearer and nearer to Him. And for those people, this passage provides uh, an incredible amount of comfort, even in the midst of all this judgment language about the end. God is reassuring his people of this one thing. His presence with his people in the inner courts in the temple will remain intact. We see this kind of pattern. We saw it in Revelation chapter 7 where you had the seven seals and the, the first six seals symbolized God's judgment upon the unrepentant. But then right in between six and seven seal, there were two incredibly hopeful symbols, if you recall. The 144,000 and the great multitude from every nation and tribe who delight in God. Right? They're the ones who, seal, who are sealed by the Lamb, and that is Christ. Their faith in Christ leads them to Him ultimately, and they'll be kept safe, even, even in the midst of the world becoming undone. They will stand. That was the hope in the midst of the seven seals. Now, here in the next series of seven, the seven trumpets, we have the same exact pattern. We have seen the Lamb's terrifying judgment on terrible sins and sinners in the first six trumpets, but in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, what do we have? Two symbols of hope, the temple city and the two witnesses. Okay. Now, we'll get to the two witnesses in a bit, but let's continue to see what, what else we, we can learn about the temple city. Take a look at verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample, trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, there's several interpretations of this. Let me give you one that I think makes the most coherent sense. The worship in the inner temple, in the inner courts, represents the true worship of God in spirit and in truth. Those who worship God from their hearts. Uh, For those people, worship is not a matter of location, where I'm at, in what building am I at. It's a matter of conviction. Worship is a matter of conviction, not location. Um, For those people, they will be kept they're the people in verse 1. They will be kept within the inner courts. Now, as, as they live out this conviction, 
we transition to verse 2. Uh, as they seek out to live their faith in the city, as they refuse to hide their faith, hide the fact that Christ is their Lord, and, and live as city on a hill, as Jesus said, verse 2 comes in and tells us, as they seek to live this way, they will suffer the trampling of the nations. And that, that means the world's persecution, the world's rejection, the world's ridicule, and the world's isolation. The worship you give God in spirit and in truth will remain intact. But your physical well-being, your livelihood, your financial security, even your emotional and your mental state, none of these will be immune to the world's persecution. They'll trample on you. The world can never damage your soul. They can never rob you of your heart, of the love you have in Christ, the love of God you have in Christ, but they can take away what you possess temporarily, uh, such as your body or your money. Things that don't last forever, things that are subject to decay anyway, uh, subject to destruction, subject to theft, to rust, to decay, uh, these things um, the nations can trample upon but not your soul, not the worship you give God from your heart, not the love of God you have deep down inside. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. That's what that means. There is an inner reality in your inner cord that out the outer reality cannot touch. There is an inner peace that outer storms can't threaten. I think there's an extremely helpful and simple application here uh, for all of us. This tells us the world can, can rattle you on the outside. In fact, it will. Uh, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. People will rattle you on the outside. Situations and circumstances will swing you from one end of the emotional pendulum to the other. You will suffer many things. But what this is also telling us is we don't have to let that dictate what we do in our hearts what we do in the inner courts of the temple. That's up to you. You have a say in that. You have a measure of control over what you do with your heart. When the world tramples on your outer court, you can still find refuge in God in your inner court. And you can keep on, therefore, worshiping. Keep on giving thanks. Keep on singing. Keep on praying and reading and meditating. Keep on listening to God, speaking to God. Keep on wrestling with him. You keep on worshiping in the inner courts. What about, what about this struggle or that struggle I have? Am I supposed to just ignore these things somehow? No, you take them to God in the inner courts. You take them to God as well. And as you meet him there, as you meet him in worship and remember who he is, what he has done, what he has promised, 
you'll find that even that burden, in view of him, is light. And your yoke is easy. And you find God is still worthy of your worship. And his presence is all that you need. Uh, something else that's quite hopeful for us in this passage is the number 42 in verse, verse 2. Some people take this literally, but um, th- that's disconnecting it. That's severing it from all the, the, the references to this number in the Old Testament. The number 42, 42 months particularly, which is three and a half years, that's a symbolic time frame used in the Old Testament to represent a temporary period of, of persecution. Uh, it's referenced in the prophet Daniel's writings, Elijah's ministries, and it's a finite period, meaning uh, it's a period that comes to an end. It's a period that comes to an end. The persecution will end. The suffering will cease. The struggling will stop. They don't go on forever. We may feel like our whatever we're uh, perplexed by is simply something that has no end. Our struggles will never cease, and that's just not true. There is an end. The the end we saw earlier in Revelation 21. Uh, God will meet us and wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will see him face to face. Until then, on this side of heaven, the world will trample on you for your faith in Jesus. The world had no problem rejecting Jesus, and they would have no problem rejecting you who received Jesus. This is calling us to to even so worship, even so give thanks, even so abide in him. Remain in his steadfast love. Remain in the inner courts. He is near. The Lord is there. The second symbol uh, is very uh, closely related to this. The second symbol is the, the two witnesses. What is the meaning of the two witnesses? Well, Revelation has made references to witnesses before, if you remember in chapters 1 and 2, where Christians are referenced as Jesus' witnesses, or the Greek word is martyria, which is where we get the word martyrs. So Jesus' witnesses are those who have a testimony. It's a true testimony. It's a testimony that they're willing to take to their graves. And here in Revelation 11, we see these witnesses again. And here there are those who call people to repentance and salvation in Jesus, which is what being clothed in sackcloth represents. It's those who mourn for the sins of the nations and call them to repentance. And, and then it also says there are the two olive trees and two lampstands, which are, again, allusions to Zechariah's vision. Uh, and they begin to appear in Zechariah chapter 4. And these two symbols represent two offices of priest and king. Priest who takes away our sins, king who transforms our lives and subdues our lives in obedience to God. In Zechariah's timeline, uh, these two offices were pointing forward to Christ, his coming. He will then accomplish both the duties of the, uh, the offices of both priest and king. But in John's timeline, he's, he's looking back, isn't he? He's looking back on how Christ fulfilled those roles of priest and king and how he then passes on this mission to his people who are to now live as his priests who bring reconciliation on earth and his kings or his ambassadors bringing transformation to the world now, even now, gradually as well. Uh, so Revelation 1, 6, 5, 10, they said this very same thing. The saints of God are a kingdom of priests to God, both priests and kings. 
That's what we are. And it says here, they will prophesy for 1,260 days. And for those of you who are um, math nerds, you already did that calculation in your head and you realize 1,260 is 42 months times 30. Right? And uh, in the ancient world, uh, their, their month had 30 days. So if you multiply 30 by 42 months, you get 1,260 days, implying one. We just saw the number 42 months signifying persecution of the church. Now we have the same duration, different number, 1,260 days, where the two witnesses of God go on prophesying, speaking the words of God. Okay. The, the world is assaulting God God's witness, uh, his saints, but his witnesses will go on prophesying, meaning speaking the words of God. They'll continue to proclaim the good news. Uh, as, as long as persecution lasts, 42 months, so long they will continue to proclaim uh, the gospel, the good news, 1,260 days. So here's, here's the other application, right? Uh, as Christians, we have to remember this. Your faith is proven not by the absence of hardship, but by how you, how you worship in the midst of hardship and how you even go on God's mission to be his witness in the midst of hardship. Even extending that ministry to those who are causing your hardship. Your faith is not proven by how you treat those who love you, but how you treat those who hate you. It's by how you make use of the 42 months of persecution and transform them into 1,260 days of missions. That's what makes you, these two witnesses, kingdom of priests to God. You are the two witnesses. You must bring reconciliation. You must bring transformation. Here's maybe one example of where you see this. Um, did you know that the country where the persecution of Christians is most severe today is North Korea? And did you know that at the same time, the country that sends out the most number of missionaries to the world is South Korea? <laughs> I think we see in this chunk of land called Korea, both the symbolism of 42 months of persecution and 1,260 days of preaching the gospel made very visible and tangible. The same piece of land, the same people who are responsible for the greatest amount of persecution are also responsible for the greatest number of evangelism and missionaries. Okay. Let's model that in our lives. Let's not grumble about the months of persecution, but turn them into missional days, one day at a time. And as we do this, God promises to hold not only his people safe, but the people who, who reject this gospel message hold them accountable to the judgment of the Lamb. That's what the language of fire pouring out from the witness's mouth means. And there's also in verse 6 allusions to Elijah and Moses' ministry. That's the rain not falling and the water being turned to blood, the plagues. God, this is God calling the nations to repent and, and really anointing the church with the same authority he gave Elijah and Moses to, to call people to repentance, and he will use that calling as a way of holding people to account if they refuse. And then 
the end will come. We get a snapshot of the end. When the, when the two witnesses finish their testimony, when they've completed their mission, the beast will rise from the bottomless pit and will kill them. And I, I take that to mean uh, near, just before uh, the end, the end comes, the end of the world, persecution will be heightened and intensified by the devil. And the church will undergo this, this series here uh, of murder, burial, and ridicule. In very much the same way Jesus went through murder, burial, ridicule. But not only that, like Jesus, the church will also be resurrected on the third day. Verse 11 says they will stand on their feet. And I think that's referring to the resurrection of all the saints on the last day, all the people of God being resurrected, given new resurrection bodies to dwell with God in his kingdom forever. And then at that hour, it says, there will be a great earthquake, which we've seen before, and it symbolized this cosmic shaking that will remove the old world and usher in the new. It's like this uh, reverse Big Bang, this great earthquake that removes the old and brings in the new. And, and it says in verse 13 that a tenth of the city will fall along with 7,000 people killed. And those who survived the earthquake, it says, they were terrified and they gave glory to God. Now, uh, some people take that to mean well, all, the, all the saints have been resurrected and taken into heaven. And, and there's, there's some extra sort of at the last minute God saved people who, who give glory to God, and, and, and that's what that's referring to. I don't think that's what that means because um, you don't get into heaven in terror. This is not referring to those who will repent and believe after all the saints have been resurrected. No, this is referring to people who will bow their knees before Christ, not willingly, but by force. Not willful surrender, but forceful subjugation. Not in joy, but in terror, worshiping Yahweh. Uh, the believers will bow and confess Jesus to be Lord with joy. The unbelievers, guess what, will also bow and confess Jesus is Lord, but they won't do it in, do it in terror. Bottom line is every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's a final application. Well, it's a question. Uh, how will you give glory to God on the last day? The question is not whether you will, it's how. Will you give him glory in joy or will you give him glory in terror? How are you giving him glory now? Willingly or unwillingly? Either way, God will be glorified through your life. So let us examine our hearts, our lives. Let's see whether we are currently living for the glory of God in joy. And if joy is lacking, ask for more joy. Ask for the joy of God's salvation. If faith is lacking, ask him for faith. If wisdom is lacking, uh, the wisdom to know the difference between the joy of living for God's glory and the pain of living for your own glory, let's ask God for that wisdom too. If courage and witnessing is lacking, let's ask him for courage. We have not because we ask not. But ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you.
we're trying to get to the point where we can answer this question, who are the temple city? Who are the two witnesses with I am? I am this temple city. I am the two witnesses. Until you get to that place, don't stop asking, don't stop seeking, and don't stop knocking. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us remember these images, these visions of the temple city and of the two witnesses so that as often as we think upon these images, we will remember what we are truly called to be, people called into your presence to enjoy just that, your presence. And Lord, how amazing it is we can actually enjoy your presence even now through your Holy Spirit, by faith in Jesus Christ, as often as we open up your word, as often as we seek you in prayer, as often as we sing your praises, as we walk in step with your spirit, as we live life in a way that pleases you, Lord, help us to delight in your presence. Help us to believe that your presence is enough. Help us to turn away from the foolish ways in which we try to draw near to other things, other people that cannot ultimately satisfy us. Lord, grant us this wisdom. Help give us eyes to see this vision you're showing us. Help us see we are the temple city. We are the two witnesses. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.